0: If you're a parent during this pandemic, you probably have a lot of questions about dealing with your child. How do you help them deal with their anxiety during this uncertain time? How do you help them deal with the unknown? What is the appropriate amount of worry and is talking about death normal? In this episode, I talk to child psychologist, Robert Friedberg, and answer some of your most pressing questions. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy. And I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Hello, this is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today we have an important guest, Robert Friedberg, talking about something that a lot of people are curious about, and that is parenting during a pandemic and dealing with all of the anxiety that children are facing as well as parents. Robert Friedberg obtained his PhD in clinical psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology, San Diego, and completed his postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Cognitive Therapy Newport Beach. Currently, he is a tenured full professor, head of the Pediatric Behavioral Healthcare Emphasis, and director of the Center for the Study and Treatment of Anxious Youth at Palo Alto University. He's done quite a lot, as you can see. He's also currently at work on a major research project studying intolerance of uncertainty and COVID-related thoughts in children and parents. So he's the perfect guest for this show, and I'm so excited to have him. Thank you for being on the show, Robert.
1: Melanie, thank you. And you know, during these times, shows like yours are so important, so I'm really honored to be here.
0: Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. And I think, yeah, now more than ever, mental health and money need to be looked at in a different way. And there are issues for everyone now. And, you know, these kind of two taboo topics that were kind of on the fringes before are definitely coming to the forefront for, for everyone right now. So I wanted to dive right in because I know a lot of the parents that I spoke with have a lot of questions and a lot of concerns. And so this episode is really dedicated to the parents who really have a lot of questions and want to know how they can help their children, how they can make sure that they're children are developing in a way that, you know, is consistent and and good for their future. So what is the best way for parents to deal with the unknown for themselves, but also how to set expectations for their children who may not really understand what's going on when there is an unknown and the parents can't provide concrete answers about when this is going to end? What do we have to do? What's the certain thing? You know, how can they deal with that?
1: great question and one I think everybody is dealing with. That, you know, both with this as well as a lot of other things, context is dependent, that, you know, everybody's different. But overall, one of the key things is that how you view uncertainty, that there are a lot of things that are uncertain in our lives. And if you see it as a disaster that you don't know everything or everything is not known. That's going to make that uncertainty much more intolerable for you. And so one thing is to view uncertainty as something that is we're all dealing with. You know, I think all the TV stations and media talk about we're all in this together. Even the experts are uncertain. So tolerating that and seeing that that's part of a natural normal response to this very unusual, you know, again, overusing that word unprecedented time would be step one. Step two is something that one of my patients taught me about many years ago when he was a young nine-year-old boy, is that the way in which we kind of look at these phenomena really does shape things. So that if we see uncertainty as disastrous Versus it is problematic, it is unsettling, it is uncomfortable, but it's not disastrous. So this little boy said to me, Dr. Bob, I got to start thinking in 3D. <laughs> that really intrigued me, right? And I said, what do you mean 3D? And he goes up on the, to the whiteboard that I have in my office and he writes capital D's, uh, discomfort or difficulty doesn't, second D, equal disaster, third D. And he said, C 3D. (laughs) And I said, oh, okay. And that became a cue both for my work with him as well as other kids that I kind of appropriated and used as, you know, we have to think in 3D, that difficulty, distress doesn't mean disaster. So, I think that's probably the first step.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. I think we're all reckoning with this idea of uncertainty right now. And I think what this is teaching a lot of people is that we have this false sense of certainty that we think we know where life is going and, you know, we think that things are so secure. But in a lot of ways, there are a lot of things out of our control that are uncertain. And so, I think, you know, at least for me personally, kind of realizing that life is unraveling the way it's going to unravel and what things can I focus on and control? And then, yeah, trying to not equate this crazy time with disaster and, and think, yeah, we're all getting through this. And I think that 3D example is wonderful. And I think parents can definitely kind of use that as a tool to set expectations for their child moving forward.
1: Yeah, that's a perfect way to look at it, Melanie, is that, and again, you mentioned the the key thing of control, right? Control is related to that. And again, one of the things is, you know, we always, and again, I, I'm guilty of this as well. I like to be in control too. But when it gets to the point of that control is overly valued, right, it gets us because we can't control everything. But oftentimes, again, what I ask kids or parents who do overvalue control is, again, I used to work at Penn State Hershey and our offices used to be across the street from Hershey Park, which has a big roller coaster. And I would often ask the families, do you go on the roller coaster? And they said, yeah. And I said, do you like it? And they said, yeah, I love the. You know, I love it, whatever. I, I can't remember the name of the roller coaster. They said, yeah, I love it. And I said, well what do you love about it? He says, you don't know what happens next. You know, it's exciting, whatever. Yeah. And I said, Oh, so you do like being out of control. Right? You can't and so there's situ- you know, we go to scary movies, suspenseful movies, and like that. So it's thinking in degrees is really, really important. How much and what you can control or be certain of.
0: I love that level of nuance. Thank you so much for sharing. And so, you know, I wanted to continue on this idea of anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety around COVID-19. We're in a pandemic. People in this generation have not experienced anything like this. And for parents in particular, I feel like they're dealing with a hard time. You know, they're suddenly having to take care and also educate their child at home. And all of the situations that were kind of normalized and part of this greater function are now gone. And so there's a lot of anxiety for the parents. There's a lot of anxiety for the children. And so with all of these kind of restrictions and these rules, it's, you know, very much anxiety inducing. And so can, how can a parent manage a child who is becoming more scared of going outside and is no longer feeling safe and full disclosure i'm selfishly uh, curious about this answer as well because i find myself being a little more agoraphobic these days i'm i'm scared to go outside and i really hope i don't develop anything worse and i think parents especially during this developmental phase that is so important how can parents manage a child who you know is becoming more scared of going outside and, and no longer feeling safe
1: Melanie, perfect question. It's so universal. I'm, I'm hearing that all the time. And I agree with you too, is that yeah? You know, I'm not sure anyone is completely comfortable going outside. And I'll just, just a quick aside, there's a biologist who wrote a wonderful book called The Lives of a Cell. His name is Lewis Thomas. And there's a great line in this about the formation of, of anxiety. And he said, evolution favors anxious genes. And again, this is just something that it's it's good to be alert and cautious, but when it becomes paralyzing and immobilizing, then it's it's hard. So for parents, right? And again, this is getting back to, don't want to be too repetitive, but context is important, right? So parents teach kids to do scary things all the time. Um, this pandemic. And also, you know, it, it, again, we're in a, a period of social unrest as well. Everything is uncertain. There's a lot of chaos about everything. And so it's the context in which you're teaching kids to be, you know, more brave than sort of changing the how you usually do this. An analogy I often say is we ask kids to cross streets all the time. Um, their safety behaviors they look both ways, push the walk button, don't talk to strangers, you know all of those safety behaviors. It's the same type of thing now is except it's masks, hand washing, distancing, all of those things, so gradually, you teach the children the skills right of riding the bike and where they ride the bike and looking both ways and wearing a helmet, all of those safety behaviors. Uh, First, you kind of teach them. Then you kind of practice going out with them in graduated way, right? You're not going to teach a kid to ride a bike on a busy street. So first thing would be maybe just going outside your house or apartment or where you live for a little bit, wear the mask, keep distant, then go a little farther and farther and farther, just like you would teach any other skill but just knowing that the physical and environmental context is different.
0: I love that. I think that's so important, kind of getting kids more acclimated and then as they get comfortable and as they feel safe, then continue to go forward and forward. And I love that suggestion of, you know, treating it like any other skill. I think that's really impactful. So thank you so much for sharing.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: So, you know, we have this pandemic, COVID-19, and we know that some people are asymptomatic, we know that some people get a mild flu-like you know situation. They might get very sick. They might get very, very sick and end up on a ventilator. And worst case scenario, people are dying. And that is very unfortunate. That is the scariest part of this whole thing is that it can lead to death. And so I know some parents are concerned about both how to manage this anxiety in children who might be worried that that could happen to them or maybe it could happen to their parents or maybe it could happen around them. And so I had one of my peers ask me how much talk about death, COVID related or not, is normal for a young child. This um, child in particular was five years old. And yeah, there are concerns about both how to navigate that conversation about death and also the converse when a child is constantly talking about death. Is this normal? When when should parents be concerned?
1: Again, that's a really great question and an interesting one too. There's a lot of complexity around, you know, what's normal and what's not normal. So I'm going to try to break it down into a, a simple rubric that is helpful for me when I do clinical work. And that is generally we're taught as clinicians to think about things in terms of frequency, intensity, and duration. So what you want to look at is how often the child is talking about death, how intensely they talk about it how you know, so is is it in great depth is it vivid and you know filled with morbid details and dark details and last is how long do they talk about it? Is it a five minute conversation that's fleeting and very superficial like what happens when you die your parent gives a simple answer and then never hears about it. Again, that would certainly never be a problem. If it's every day in a lot of detail with a lot of emotion associated with it, and that lasts a long time, you know, more than minutes, uh, depending on an age. So you mentioned a five year old, you would expect that to be more fleeting, more superficial, not very depthful about you know, the details of death more about like, what happens? What are we talking about with death? Or how will you die, mommy or daddy? Those type of questions are very, very normal as it gets, again, more frequent, daily, multiple times weekly, longer periods of time with a lot of sort of morbidity to it, then you start to worry about that. And then you probably want to seek some professional help if, if, if you have a child that's what we would call centering or narrowing on on death, which is not frequent, but is not you know uh, rare in younger children.
0: Okay, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's super useful. And kind of another part of that question, you know, how can parents navigate this conversation if children are realizing this could potentially end up in death, or is there an appropriate way to tell them that? This might happen, and, and just full disclosure, I am not a parent at all. I do not have children, so I don't know if these questions are even appropriate or right. But I'm curious for parents: like, is that an appropriate discussion for them to have? If so, how can they navigate that?
1: Any discussion is pretty much appropriate between parent and child. You know, it's the more you discuss, the better it is. But you really have to match what you're saying or making what you're saying relevant to the age of the child. So the way in which you talk about this with a six-year-old is going to be different than a 16-year-old. And one of the difficulties with this, and this is, this is true in any sort of risky situation, is that in many cases, a lot of these dangers are low probabilities, but the magnitude of the danger is high. That's what makes everybody scared. To put it in a, in a context or an analogy, the analogy that I use is when you're a parent of a teenager and they go driving, either as themselves or with their peers, that they, um, they're taking a risk. And the risk of a fatal car accident is higher in teens, yeah, but it's still relatively low probability. But the magnitude of the danger is high. We tolerate that all the time. Uh, you know, otherwise, we wouldn't let our kids go out. (laughs) Uh, So it's the same, it's the same situation again, or even walking to school, right? They, They have to look both ways when they cross the street. If they walk into traffic, that's a dangerous situation. Fortunately, not a lot of kids do that. But if they did, it would be a high magnitude. So I think what you have to, as a parent, you match how you talk about the probability of the risk of what you might be engaging in and saying, yeah, you know, if we don't do that, there is a possibility that you can get really ill and die. The book by Shatkin, which is Born to be Wild, really goes through and talks a lot about parents tolerating risk-taking, helping kids rate risk-taking And it's particularly great for adolescents, but uh, it does have, I think, application for younger kids as well.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I think now that you're talking about kind of this example with older children and teenagers, I'm curious, you know, how can parents manage this idea with children who we're going to graduate this year as a senior. They're headed off to college, but now they don't know if they're going to stay in the dorm or even have the normal college experience. How can parents navigate this for, for children who are very disappointed, very maybe even depressed or anxious about these kind of milestones that are no longer going to happen in the traditional way?
1: And again, they're experiencing reasonable sense of loss, all of those milestones and the celebrations around that and the transitions around leaving high school and moving on to either employment or college or whatever's next after high school the first thing and again context is important so it's going to vary for age range and parents and everybody's circumstances but the first thing is sort of to validate that that that's a loss and to allow kids some time to vent about that or to grieve that loss of the graduation celebration or whatever they have lost regarding that. And then secondly, to problem solve, is that what else can we do? And again, it's the same. You don't have to have brand new skills for the most part as parents. You just have to apply the same skills you use in situations where kids have been disappointed before and use those again, but in the context of the pandemic.
0: Oh, I think that's so great and useful. Thank you. And so kind of shifting gears to a more real world example. One of my peers asked, not all children are feeling the same. She happens to have two children. One is very anxious around the pandemic, and the other one is is not so concerned about it. And, you know, how can you Navigate that when two children are feeling completely differently, and how can you find something that's more middle of the road and navigate both of their curiosities and anxieties or not feeling very worried about it and how can you make sure that you're doing things that make sense for your situation?
1: I love that question because that question also has an has sort of a, an embedded or implicit advantage to it, so if you have multiple let's say two kids or more and one of them is anxious and the other is perfectly fine with everything there's an advantage to that because you can use the sibling as a model you can sensitively help the child who you or the child who is more anxious or distressed by using their peer model their sibling model as a helper so, in like in our previous example of you know whatever it is going out to the front yard for a greater period of time, is that involve the non-distressed child in the activity that you're teaching the younger child to uh, cope with? And then you could say, well, you know, Johnny's doing this. What do you notice about Johnny that is helpful to you? What's not helpful? How can Johnny and I and you help you um, go outside and, you know, ride your bike in wherever it is so that there's an advantage to having a sib who is coping well? Um, and it's clearly an advantage than if you have all it becomes much more difficult if all the kids in your household are, are distressed because you can get a contagion effect there. Uh, of that one anxiety or one level of depression just, you know, accelerates the others. The key here is to be, is to use this, the, the model, the sibling model very sensitively and not in a way that makes the other child feel less than.
0: Definitely. I love that. And I think that's super useful. And I think that's going to be really helpful for the person that asked this question. And I think for a lot of parents Too, who are dealing with a similar situation as well. And just kind of piggybacking off that, you said this is a better situation than working with a lot of children who happen to all be very anxious about this and can have a contagion effect. How would parents who are dealing with that situation navigate this?
1: That's a much tougher one. Again, what you have to do is certainly kind of recognize the different age ranges because kids will have different types of fears or anxieties around this based on their age, right? An adolescent is going to have more abstract, more sophisticated worries than a younger child. So you have to treat them again, much more individually as to what these fears are. That's certainly going to take a real toll on on a parent. There's a variety of techniques you can do with these type of things. Uh, the good news is, that there are things that you can do to decrease their anxiety, Um, they work. The key is matching them to your child and their particular worries. A really great resource for that is a book by Tamar Chansky called Freeing Your Child from Anxiety. It's written for parents. It's very inexpensive. It's a paperback book, has very, very clear and practical strategies for kids who may have more concrete worries just about when do I go back to school Mm -hmm. or what's school going to be like to adolescents who might have very abstract, far-reaching worries such as how is this going to affect my education? How is this going to affect the economy? Well, will I be able to get all of those type of what-ifs that can make people very, 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 very anxious and worried? So, the good news is that there's lots of things you can do. The complicated fact is it depends on the nature of each of those kids worries, which more than often than not are going to be different.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you provided that resource. And I think that's wonderful to give parents, you know, places they can turn to with actionable advice, because this is a lot to handle for for anyone. And I think parents are taking on so much extra work right now and trying to be an additional support to their children and trying to figure out, you know, how they can do that while also taking care of themselves.
1: Absolutely. And it's so important that parents give themselves a break because so many are being teacher, therapist, mother, nurse, you know, father, uh, cetera. It's very, very demanding. And so it's important that parents give themselves a little bit of grace and patience during this time and realize that for the most part, what's worked with, with you and your family will work in the pandemic if you just have to, you know, apply it in that context.
0: Thank you so much. So parents listening, this is your permission slip. Take a break. <laughs> you are allowed to take a break and take care of yourself. This is a lot for anyone. So just wanted to repeat that because I know there are a lot of parents who who need to hear that and need the permission to take that to heart. So thank you so much for saying that.
1: Absolutely.
0: So one of the most difficult parts of this pandemic, besides the anxiety, is the social isolation. You know, we are stuck inside and it can be incredibly lonely, incredibly frustrating. And so I've heard from a lot of parents that they are worried about how this isolation is going to affect them developmentally. Is it going to cause developmental damage by not, you know, engaging with others socially and what can they do to help avoid that if anything?
1: That's a real concern, right? And that um, the honest answer to that is it depends. Just like a, a physical illness, it depends on sort of the pre-existing vulnerabilities that your child has. Um, for kids who have more prone to more depression or more social isolation or more anxiety or more anger or whatever, that it wouldn't be surprising that that the pandemic makes that worse. For kids who don't, they may have some negative effect, but that's going to be relatively Less than if they have a pre existing condition. But to minimize some effects of social isolation, you can think about um, depending on the resources that the family has. Certainly, you know, remote play dates on, you know, Zoom or whatever platform or whatever thing is accessible to that particular family is a good idea. In person ones that again so I adhere to the social distancing and masking requirements, you know that would also be okay. You know, for example, back in the uh, two thousand eight, again when I was at Hershey and we had the swine flu epidemic, there were some families that were worried about social interaction among friends and the and the, and the peers, but also worried that they didn't want to rob their kids of play dates. So one of the things we came up with is they used, um, walkie talkies. Oh, Right outside. So, and they played like I spy, you know, that children's game yeah. and play via walkie talkies. You know, I think you probably could do that if the kids had uh, cell phones, which many kids do. So you could do that. Uh, so you, there are creative ways in which you can have them get together but safely, you know, with the, the distancing and the masking and the other precautions that you would need to take. So, you know, there's remote options, there are in-person options that are going to be certainly different than before March, but that's possible just to increase your, your connection.
0: Thank you. I love that. I think that's so important. It's such a fun idea, walkie-talkies or using these cell phones in new ways. I think that's that's brilliant. Yeah. And so I wanted to kind of, you know, go off of that question and for children with special needs, such as autism, how can parents help those children in particular cope with not being able to see their friends and being in this isolated state?
1: First of all, you know, any kid who's diagnosed on the, on the autism spectrum, if they want to go out and see friends, that's a good thing. So I would again begin by side by kind of reinforcing that that desire but also kind of putting a limit that we have to have these different parameters or precautions about how we you know interact how we socialize with friends with pals so one of the things that you first have to do is help them with you know they may not be able to play or interact in ways in which they have done In the past, then they may feel frustrated or disappointed about that. Similar to some of the other comments, that level of frustration is similar to other frustrating situations that the kids and the parents have had to navigate in the past. So you'd use the same strategies to help them tolerate frustration that you've used when perhaps their routines have been disrupted or things have not gone their way or those type of things Is that there's really not a, a you know, a, a secret pill or skill for this current situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, frustration is frustration. Disappointment is disappointment. The event is different, right? Or, the, you know, the occurrence around this. So um, you'd use the same things you do to, to help them deal with frustration over other things.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I think, you know, it's such a good example and such a good reminder that we have felt these feelings before we have felt these emotions before, maybe not exactly to this magnitude, but we felt them before. And, and this is a new situation. And, you know, kind of going back to the earlier questions, you know, about uncertainty, I think another kind of reframing technique with the uncertainty is to try to have a positive lens about it and say anything's possible right? I think Mm -hmm. that's something that I try to hold on to is like, I can so easily go into this anxiety spiral and like one thing triggers another, then suddenly I'm, you know, worried about the zombie apocalypse and everything's ending and imploding. But I think we can also use that uncertainty to be like, things can be better and we don't know what's going to happen and good things can happen. You know, like just thinking of, um, parents and kids in general, and just, you know, life experience, you know, when you have a good thing happen, you're like, wow, I would have never thought this would have happened in my life. I would have never imagined that I met the love of my life. I would have never imagined that I got into this school. I would have never imagined that I got this great job. You know, I think we can use those examples and use that to reframe our anxiety about the uncertainty.
1: Absolutely. And again, a great, great point is that certainly there are a lot of stressors and downsides to this pandemic. That goes without saying. But again, it's really how we allocate our attention. If we only allocate on the dangerous, depressing, frustrating parts of it, which are normal, right? But if that's so absolute, that's the only thing we're looking at, it's going to make it worse. Versus looking at the things that might be an advantage of this. You know, one of the, uh, well, nobody likes being stuck in the house, right? You know, the other, the one thing that I, that my, and, and Melanie, you know, my wife, Barbara and I have said is, man, you know, some of our income has decreased, mm-hmm. but we're really saving a lot on gas. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so that even sort of some of those silly advantages can help you have a bit of a shift so that you're not only focusing on, on the threats that you're experiencing or the losses that you may be experiencing, that there may be some some gains to it as well.
0: That's such a good example. I mean, I think a lot of people are dealing with a huge loss of income, obviously, of varying degrees, whether it's slight loss or a huge loss or, you know up until unemployment. And I think, yeah, to your, to your point, like, yeah, but we are saving money on gas. We are saving money on going out to eat. And these are the other wins that we can look at while we try to navigate the other part of the equation and, you know, fix that. But it's important to look at what are the wins. You know, I've heard from other parents who say, this is the first time I've really been able to have quality time with my child. You know, I was always so busy going here, there and everywhere. And, this has really reaffirmed the importance of family. And I think that is a huge thing that could potentially come out of this for some parents is that they have been able to reconnect with their children and their family that potentially they were not able to in a way before.
1: Absolutely. And I know you hit on it so astutely there, which is there's there's a thing that cognitive therapists call tunnel vision and that it's very easy during these times to do this sort of tunneling. And you're only looking at the threats and losses and et cetera that this occurs. I'll again, give you a pure example for myself. When this first started, all I could hear outside my house was ambulance sirens.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: right. And I was that, that literally I was tunneling in on that must mean all these people in the neighborhood are getting sick, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And the more
1: I focused in on just those, you know, the threats, the more anxious I became. Versus there was naturally, it was not 24-7 that the, but it seemed that way because I was tunneling, right? It was probably three or four or five, you know, uh, that were in the neighborhood where the the ambulance came. But if you f- allocate your attention just to those threats, losses, et cetera, it's going to magnify them.
0: Definitely, definitely. So I I want to address this huge concern and also really just kind of hopefully provide some comfort for parents. So this is for parents in general, but I'm especially thinking of some mothers of young children I know who are thinking that they're just messing everything up right now. They think that they're not doing the right job with teaching. They're not doing a good job taking care of their children, they're not doing a good job as a husband or wife. They can't manage it all. And I I've, I've heard this from a lot of parents in particular, but women specifically, who just feel like they're not doing anything right and they can't manage it and it's too much and they feel like they are failing. And obviously I disagree with that, but I'm curious what you would tell them to, you know, kind of offer a different perspective.
1: You know, perfectionism is such a curse sometimes. Yes. The thing about perfectionism is that it's such an absolute. So I'm either perfect at one end or a failure at the other versus there's no in between. There's no degrees of goodness, right? It's either good or bad. I'm either perfect or unworthy. I'm either, you know, whatever, perfect or incompetent. You know, as I said before, this is such an important time to really essentially dare to make mistakes, that it's so important to dare to be imperfect. Trying to juggle all those balls, as you said before, as a mother, father, other caregivers to kids, gets a lot of balls to keep in the air. And so, you have to allow yourself to drop them, you know, a a little bit or give somebody else some of the balls if possible. But having that sort of unrelenting standard of being best at everything really comes at quite a cost. So, I I can't emphasize more of saying, you know, that again, I work mainly with kids and adolescents. So, you know, when I tell my perfectionistic kids and adolescents is you want to put it in degrees, how imperfect or how perfect are you? So first of all, nobody's ever a 10 on perfect. That's not possible. Right. And that's the thing with perfectionism is perfectionistic people most understandably are always distressed or dissatisfied because they have an unattainable goal. It's not possible. Yes. Yes. So you're always going to be, you know, a hair, a hair less than perfect. So you want to put things in, in terms of how competent or how good you are at certain things on a scale of zero to 10. And then say, what's acceptable? Is five acceptable? You know, it's not completely incompetent. Is seven? Are you seven most of the time? And then what's acceptable for you? And can you find an acceptable standard, self-standard for yourself? That doesn't come at a cost, so that's in a nutshell <laughs> my my thing on sort of these unrelenting perfectionistic standards.
0: thank you so much, yeah, I think there's no playbook on how to parent, and there's no playbook on you know how to parent during a pandemic and when school's close and we're dealing with a health crisis and racial injustice and there's no perfect guide on on how to do this, and I think a lot of parents may feel like. They have to do everything right because they are their children's role model. That's a worthy goal. But like you said, no one's perfect and everyone's family dynamic is different. And so you have to kind of work within that realm. And, you know, kind of a a tangent of that question. I see a lot of parents who to try to manage all of those balls that they are juggling. They are relenting to having their children have more screen time, like, here's the iPad, here's the TV, I need a moment for myself, or I need a moment to make dinner, you know, should parents be concerned about the additional screen time for their children right now?
1: Um, Again, it's a matter of degrees. So if they're uh, in a remote educational situation, right, they're going to have a lot of screen time anyway, that it depends on how much, you know, it's frequency and duration. Um, yeah, if they're spending, you know, 80, 90% of their time on the screen, something to worry about if it's somewhere around their average time that they usually spend in front of the screen, then not so much. The other part is what's the alternative? You know, a lot of times is that we depending on where you live and what resources you have, there may not be as many choices. So it depends on what's the other choice. So it's a matter of degree.
0: Got it. Thank you. And so I wanted to end this interview with a question that I think everyone is thinking of, but especially people with children. And that is, when do the mental health risks of isolation, you know, when did they start outweighing the virus illness risks of coming in contact
1: with people? When they become severe. Mm-hmm. Right. So we always look at sort of Risk benefit. And, it, you know, Dr. Fauci, all, uh, when he comes on, talks about that you have to be aware of the context of the level of contamination by the virus, right? It depends on where you live, what you do, all of those type of things. So you have to do a, a constant uh, risk benefit ratio analysis for your family. That when you're seeing a deterioration in your child's functioning as if uh, due to the isolation, It doesn't mean that you have to quickly expose them to greater health risks. It may be that you have to seek help, which may be available via telehealth from a practitioner or an agency or a hospital or wherever, depending on your resources and your your location and those type of things. So you know, like with many of the other things that we said, it's not really an either or. It can be both. So you can protect your health and. Protect your mental health by seeking telehealth options.
0: Yes, and I highly recommend telehealth options. I think that kind of helps level the playing field for some people where distance and time were an issue. And yeah, I think, you know, it's always kind of a risk analysis of what am I willing to risk? And like you said, it's not necessarily an either or. And if really the issue is the child needs socialization, that's the one thing that's really going to help them out. I think you know, like you said earlier, having masks and social distancing, you know at least six feet or more apart, get creative, figure out those games, like the walkie-talkie, like what can be done in, in that scenario?
1: Exactly, you know, or you know you know you see uh, like commercials on on TV where the kids are separated by a window, yeah right, and they play Simon says or something like that. So there are ways to do that.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, this interview has been so useful. I know people are going to find it so helpful for their particular situations. Is there anything else that you want to add around parenting during a pandemic and dealing with anxiety?
1: No, but I do want to say one thing, Melanie. I think that what you're doing with your podcast is so important. Getting information out to people that's readily accessible that, you know, this is not a, a. in particular, again, as we talk about context, that the podcast like yours really, in a time in which this pandemic has laid bare, our health disparities, our racial injustices, our need to connect with other people, that this really serves a very important function. So I'm really thankful and appreciative of the work that you're doing. And really feel privileged to be a guest uh to contribute in some way.
0: Oh, thank you. You're getting me quite emotional over here and I I really appreciate that this is, you know, a huge passion project of mine and I think it's so important that we break the stigma around money and mental health and yeah, now more than ever in these quote unprecedented times. Now is the time to have these conversations and provide resources. So I'm extremely privileged to have you as a guest. You are a leading expert in your field. And so I know that your assistance and your resources and advice are going to help so many people.
1: I hope so. And again, I really, really appreciate the opportunity to to contribute.
0: Great. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they find you?
1: You can find me on the Palo Alto University website. Perfect.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you and uh, stay well and safe.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave a review. If you want to suggest a topic or simply say hello, you can reach me at mentalhealthandwealthshow at gmail.com. You can check out the rest of our content at mentalhealthandwealth.com. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.